Um, before, I, before I start my message, I do want to uh, just pass on a, a completely different message uh, from the church at Kalani Mission. Uh, there is uh, a Brethren Assembly there, and, uh, and completely under the leadership of uh, local men, and uh, they charged me with the responsibility of passing on a greeting to Canterbury Gardens. Uh, they wanted uh, us to thank you on their behalf uh, for sending us and supporting us, and uh, the elder who spoke to me uh, did say that uh, and I'm not sure he meant it quite like this. He did say he'd be praying for you as you receive his fast back. <laughs> um, uh, and so, greetings from Kalani, from the believers there. And uh, as I've often told them, I, I hope that they will get in the habit of sending news of what's happening uh, so that we can share it. Because Paul often gave a, a great... Uh, a report of what was happening in various churches or told churches, you know, I give thanks every time I hear about your faith. Well, he doesn't hear about their faith unless someone is actually reporting it. Uh, we don't do enough of it between our different believers in different parts of the world. We mentioned in our... Uh, now, I'll have to apologise here. I'm used to speaking, first of all, uh, in short sleeves and working up a sweat. Uh, I'm not used to Melbourne just yet. Um, second thing I have to apologise for is I'm also used to preaching with somebody. Uh, uh, I'm pausing and he takes up in a different language for a few moments. Uh, so if I get the timing of this sermon wrong, you'll understand why. <laughs> I've all of a sudden had to prepare a, a full sermon instead of half a sermon to fill the time. Um, we spoke about me doing some Bible teaching at uh, a lay Bible school. Uh, no one comes out with a certificate or a diploma or a degree or uh, a Masters of Theology or anything like that. Um, Nyangombi Christian Training Centre is uh, based around the idea of equipping uh, uh, men and women working in their own churches uh, with Bible knowledge and uh, the ability to share it uh, with their fellow believers in the local area. Uh, or if they're seeking to cross the borders and uh, take the gospel into other countries. Uh, so that was a relief to me because it meant I didn't have to be some highfalutin Bible student uh, to be able to share with them because they weren't highfalutin Bible students either. Um, uh, but I loved going. I made an annual visit pretty much over the last uh, hmm, seven or eight years, I think it was, uh, to Nyangombi uh, to spend a week and uh, sometimes more uh, sharing from God's word. Now, the last time I was there, I decided to do something a little bit different. Previously, I'd sort of chosen a book or a theme and, uh, and sort of taught. This time, I took a concordance, uh, which was something that some of them had seen uh, who read in English. Uh, many hadn't because they only read in their local language, and there isn't a decent concordance in their local language. So I took along my NIV exhausting, uh, exhaustive concordance, which is a massive big thing. And together we looked up every, every instance in the NIV translation of the English word seek and its immediate derivatives, like seeking and sought. And we said, 
I've got no hidden agenda here. We're just going to see where it takes us and what we find that's interesting and what we might like to look into more. And so the first exercise was, you, know, you, you guys, you've got to look up all these verses and you've got to identify some that'll be interesting to study up a bit more. Follow this path that God's given us. Because I do that often when I'm actually preparing a message. Just look up a concordance, pick a word and see where it takes me. Often you end up talking about something entirely different because that's where it took you. So we started and uh, we had a great time together. And one of the verses that uh, came out, uh, it was in the book of Amos. And I had to admit to myself, I've never actually studied Amos. Um, I'd read it a couple of times through, but never actually made a study of it. And so we sort of did a, an introductory study to Amos impromptu uh, at this, uh, during these sessions. But the verse that, uh, that uh, came up, Uh, was from chapter 5, verse 4, which reads, This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Now, as I got this group to make a note about which uh, passages they'd like to look into more, they tended to pick things that they would actually like to put up on the wall. They wanted to choose texts, sort of encouraging verses. And uh, this looks like a pretty good verse to put on the wall. Uh, This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel, seek me and live. But you should never take a verse out of context. And uh, the context in this case is the entire book of Amos and the point of history in which the two nations, Israel and Judah, found themselves in. We pick up the story a few generations before Amos. I had planned to get a man with a beard out here with some acting experience, but I think he's gone somewhere else. So I could do this by myself. In a story opener, worthy of much dramatisation and an excellent score for the music, a guy by the name of Jehu is visited by some sort of prophet in training who has his cloak tucked into his belt and a flask in his hand and he's acting pretty secretive. Signals Jehu over. Come away from those other people you're with. I want to talk to you alone. He takes Jehu aside and he pours oil all over his head and tells him three things God has anointed you king of Israel that's one go and assassinate the current king two after that destroy the whole royal family three the messenger then made it obvious why the cloak was tucked in to the belt because he immediately ran out of the door and disappeared over the horizon before there was any chance to ask any clarifying sorts of questions. The scene, complete with intriguing and suspenseful music, reaches its finale with Jehu left all alone, looking rather stunned and absent-mindedly 
wiping something very like Greek salad dressing out of his beard. Now, either conditions in the Israelite army were pretty poor, or Jehu had a fairly magnetic personality, because he had no trouble getting his fellow officers on side with this program, which he then announced to them as they asked him who this madman was who just ran out and away. Not only did he get his fellow officers to join him, but every time they met a messenger coming from the king, uh, they were quickly uh, joining the revolutionary band as well. And so he catches up with the king and he kills him, as per instructions. And on a whim, he also bumps off the king of Judah, who happens to be there on a visit at the time. He then goes after the royal family and all the king's henchmen and supporters, taking a particular delight in doing in the king's grandmother, Jezebel, who had been a particularly nasty sort over the years. He also lured the priests of Baal up to their temple, all at the same time, and had them slaughtered and destroyed the building. God was rather pleased with Jehu for his prompt action. And so he promised him the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. Meanwhile, the incidental death of the king of Judah uh, caused a bit of a power vacuum back there. because the king had been just a young bloke and his own father had secured the position of being king himself through the indiscriminate murder of all of his own brothers. And uh, Jehu, in doing away with the royal family in Israel, had also come across some more people from Judah and he killed another bunch of the southern royal family as well. So there weren't many who could be heirs in Judah left alive. So the Queen Mother, another not-so-gentle soul, decided to bump off any of uh, possible remaining heirs, including her own grandchildren, and Caesar was secretly saved. And six years later, the old witch was finally... Amos has taken place. The amazing thing is that from those very turbulent beginnings uh, there's been quite a change in the political scene in both nations in Judah despite several battles taking place and two more kings having been assassinated Isaiah, the grandson of Joash is in the middle of a long and successful 52 year reign and in Israel despite several battles and a succession of kings who were rather naughty lot, Jehu's great-grandson, Jeroboam, is in the middle of a long and successful 41-year reign. The Egyptians to the south seem to have adopted an isolationist policy and they're not uh, really bothering the little kingdoms around uh, where Israel and Judah are just for now. 
Aram to the north, which has always been a problem for Israel, have finally been shaken off with a bit of help from the Lord. And Aram is also focused on events to the east where the Assyrians are on the rise. So that left the kings of Israel and Judah to be the big fish and the not so big fish in a little pond. And between them, they pretty much had the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites and all the other ites and eins around them, either under the thumb or on side. Their combined empires were almost as extensive as that of Solomon and they were extracting some good income through their own trade and through running protection rackets on the trade routes passing through their territories. In other words, in Israel and Judah, for many, life is good and the future looks rosy. Enter Amos a shepherd from Judah with a message to Israel. And you can imagine Jeroboam, king of Israel, getting a messenger coming to him from the Lord. This could be quite exciting because the last time we really heard about someone, that was when great-granddad Jehu got told he was going to be king. So I can sort of imagine Jeroboam sitting down with all his cronies. Okay, go ahead, Amos. Give us the word. Tell us what the message is. But it was a slightly surprising opening. Chapter 1, verse 2. Amos said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. Doesn't sound all that exciting. First of all, if the Lord is roaring from Zion, which is in Judah, that's not going to make... uh, Jeroboam feel very happy and Carmel which is in Israel is withering Jeroboam's not going to be feeling too excited about that message as well hang on hang on I'm the big brother here actually Judah does what I want at the moment I'm the stronger last time we had a bit of a biffo I won but the message moves on And I think Jeroboam probably settled down a bit because for quite a bit of the first two chapters of this book, Amos goes ahead and announces a whole bunch of judgments on a whole bunch of other people. Let's run through them. There's seven. Nice, complete number, isn't it? Damascus, which is the people of Aram. They're going to go into exile for all the nasty things they've done, says God. Jeroboam would probably have received that message with mixed feelings because uh, he was doing a fair bit of trade with Aram by this point. But of course, if Aram was going to go into exile, that would open up lots of opportunities for a savvy king of Israel. Gaza, that's the Philistines. They're going to be exterminated, says God, for all the nasty things they've done. Jeroboam probably nodded. Yeah, can agree with that one. Uh, Tyre. Uh, over on the coast to the north of Israel. The city's going to be burned for the nasty things they've done, says the Lord. Rather disturbing news for Jeroboam because he does lots and lots of trade through Tyre. A lot of income through there. He's actually probably got a house in Tyre of his own. But as the Lord wills, 
Uh, Edom. The fire is going to consume Edom. Well, that's okay. They deserve it. Deserve everything you get, the Edomites. Ammon. A destructive battle is going to come upon them. Exile for the king and his officials. Good stuff, Amos. Preach it. Preach it, man. Preach it. We can cope with that. Judah. Fire to consume Jerusalem. Great amusement. Little brother is in trouble. But without pausing for breath, Amos continues on into chapter 2, verse 6, and begins to pronounce judgment on Israel. Now, he took a couple of verses, three or four verses, over each of the others, and the number got up to seven. That should have been complete. But no, there's one more. Israel. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. It's exactly how he started the pronouncement of judgment on all the others. And he followed it up with what was going to happen and a reason why. And so he starts to give what's going to happen and reasons why. And let's, the, the, that continues on and on and on and on. Israel really get an earful. Uh, 2 verses uh, 7 and 8, well, 6, 7 and 8. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God they drink wine taken as fines. 3 verse 10 they do not know how to do right declares the Lord they hoard plunder and loot in their fortresses 3 verse 15 I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house this is the upper crust here wealthy enough to have two houses not just houses, but houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. 4 verse 1, I love this one. Spent some time explaining this to the Bible school. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. You women who oppress the poor, and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The cows of Bashan, now when I was a kid at school, it was a pretty nasty sort of insult to call a lady a cow. Um, we often, without her hearing, called our teachers. Get that. Watch out, the old cow is coming! But here the reference is to uh, the, the best cows in the whole area. And they were pampered and sort of had everything they wanted because they were, you know, they were fattened up nicely. Uh, you see the cows of Bashan. I explained to the, the guys at the Bible school. Uh, you see them when you go to uh, the cities in Zambia. Because you, you sort of think of Africa as a place where people are poor, don't you? Africa is a place where some people are ridiculously rich. And everybody else 
tends to be poor. So you go into the cities and uh, in our time there we've gone from struggling to find what we want in the crowded little supermarket to being able to walk through a mall which looks not unlike uh, the new section of Eastland with fancy shops all under one roof and you see the cows of Bashan walking through there. I go walking through there in my ordinary clothes as a white missionary and you can tell the attitude. They can walk past you and not even notice your existence. Everybody else is just a bit player in life. And they have the most fancy hairdos and the most wonderful clothes and people in Zambia dress up to go to the shops, I can tell you. As I was explaining this to the Bible school, one lady was there and she was actually a local who was living in Lusaka, the capital. And she puts up her hand when I mentioned the hairdos and she said, uh, the ladies can spend up to 5,000 kwacha on a hairdo. Uh, nurses in our hospital... Uh, would receive approximately that much for a month's work. The cows of Bashan, they gave no heed to anybody else. 5 verse 7. You who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. You can see the picture here. In Israel, there was a definite class system which should not have been there in the kind of economy that God had instructed them to set up. The class system should not have been there in the kind of economy that God had instructed them to set up. And yet there was a very definite class system. Those who were the cronies of the king, set up as the nobles, the aristocracy. Uh, if you've ever read any historical novels from England, from the... You know, the uh, the 16 and 17 and the 1800s, you understand a little bit of what it's like. You get the picture. People like uh, 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 the, the aristocracy in France, the King Louis, well known for having females in their household, say of the poor, oh, they've got no bread. They can eat cake instead. The problems of the poor didn't matter and in fact the wealth of the upper class was coming at the expense of the poor at the expense of their rights before God in 5 verse 11 it says for the Lord has given the uh, that's 6 5 verse 11 uh, you trample on the poor and force him to give you grain therefore though you have built stone mansions you will not live in them etc etc uh, at the expense of the poor they built their stone mansions they l decorated it with ivory and timber from the most expensive places this is the Israel that Amos knows and comes to talk to the nobility the aristocracy the ones in charge the ones with all the benefits life is good the future looks rosy for them you know, last week we had a message and uh, there was a, it was about a lady who put in two coins into the treasury 
and Chris pointed out the fact that somebody who was putting in the last of their money into the temple, first of all, shouldn't have been that poor in Israel or in Judah if God's people were doing as God said. Second of all, she should not have felt an obligation to put money into the temple offering. I can add a little bit more to that. Not only were the wealthy not looking after her, but in Judah at the time, they actually probably looked on her and blamed her for her poverty. Why? Because wealth was God's blessing and God withdrew his blessing if you'd done wrong. I mean, I can understand how they got to think about that because if you read the Old Testament, God does make quite a lot of promises to the nation of Israel about where obedience would, would lead them and where disobedience would lead them. But he was talking to a nation more than individuals. And one of the things the nation ought to have been doing was looking after widows. And yet rather they held her in contempt because she was poor. It meant she was a sinner. She wasn't living up to the righteous standards that other people set. The other thing Chris managed to mention last week was uh, televangelists. And I agreed with every word he said. Large sections of the Western Church and its clones in developing nations are looking a lot like Israel in the days of Amos. Wealth is, the, is considered a sure sign of God's blessing. Being poor is looked upon as shameful, almost sinful in many of these churches. And there are people in the church getting wealthy at the expense of poorer people in the church. Horrendously wealthy. It's happening in our nation. It's happening famously in America. It's happening in Zambia. Looking very much like Israel in the times of Amos. So where do we stand Are we complacent in our comfort? Do we heed the plight of the poor, the widowed, the orphan? Or are we desensitised by living in a nation that has largely put social welfare in the hands of the government? Quite honestly, I come back to Australia and... Realistically speaking, everybody is looked after to an enormous extent because I come from a place where there's nothing for those who have nothing. Yes, we have social workers, but they have no resources to do anything. They fill a position on the government payroll and that's about it. And so welfare is in the hands of the people who live around you. And it's in your face all the time. Is it enough for us to have a church where the music is good? 
where kids' church is lively, where the youth are active, where the decorations are tasteful, where the refreshments are abundant, where the Bible teachers always use the Bible, which is not a given in churches. And not only that, they're entertaining to listen to as well. This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel in Amos chapter 5 verse 4 and going on from there. This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel, do not go to Gilgal. Why does he mention these two places? These two places were places of worship in Israel. It's where people went to offer sacrifices. Do not seek Bethel, do not go to Gilgal. Do not to journey to Beersheba, which is actually way down the bottom of Judah. Apparently people from Israel were making pilgrimages down there as well. For Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. Seek the Lord and live. Where do we stand? Because I think we need to know, as in we individually need to know where we stand because as we move forward and I think particularly of young people and I've got them particularly in mind because I've got four of them growing up in my house they need to know where they stand in relation to these things because I believe the church as a wider conglomerate is going further and further the way of Israel and we can easily get caught up in it We can easily get sucked in by those people who are making money out of us and promising blessings when we give or blessings for doing the right thing or blessings when we give. And they're buying houses in Texas that cost them $10 million. God's been pretty clear on the fact that the poor are important to him. Amos chapter 4 verses 4 and 5 also mentions Bethel and Gilgal. It says, go to Bethel and sin. Hang on. Bethel's a place of worship. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Gilgal's a place of worship. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. Let's not fall into the trap of becoming a boastful church that is looking to grow big and wealthy. God has other priorities. And when we go along to a church 
that's doing that sort of thing and join in it with the wholeheartedly just as people from Israel were going to these two places and joining in wholeheartedly and enjoying it God looked on it as sin that's a sobering thought that people are going to church and doing everything that everybody else does there and God looks on it as sin that is an incredibly sobering thought James chapter 1 verse 27 says religion that God our father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world sounds simple when you read it quickly doesn't it for a start off there's a real tension in that very very one verse because to look after the orphans and widows in distress you have to go into the world And yet, James says, part of the whole deal is to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. Jesus himself sends us into the world to make disciples. And yet it's that world that he warns us about. And when he prayed for his disciples, he prayed for them regarding the world and the things they were going to face in it. It's very confronting for somebody like me because I lived in Zambia for 14 years and I made my living providing services for the poor. That's very confronting for me because I have to look at my motives over that time. And it was tough very very tough Rachel mentioned that we were pretty poor at writing newsletters one of the reasons was was that Rachel was crazy busy in hospital all the time and so it usually fell to me and every time I sat down at the computer to type a letter it felt like I was trying to get some income and I sort of thought you know I can show lots of pictures of people who are in need and yet I'm going to feel like I'm putting that up so that I can afford to send my kids to the nice school they go to. Or to afford the little treats that we like to give our kids. Where do we stand? How careful are we being? We all feel like very ordinary people when we live in Australia. I could take any one of you very ordinary people to Zambia and everyone would look at you as though you're very wealthy because you are Amos spoke his message to the leaders of Israel I encourage you to read the whole book it's got a whole lot more in it than I can give you in a little over half an hour before he spoke this verse that I started with seek me and live he was talking about what was going to happen the city that marches out a thousand strong for Israel will have only a hundred left he was talking about the desolation that was going to come upon them the town that marches out a hundred strong will only have ten left it's ten percent each time Um, he's talking about the idea there's only going to be a few left over at the end of it all and he says seek 
me and live, quoting his God. You know, I think we're actually going to find, as we go forward, too many of our churches can going to be in the 90%. You've got to seek the Lord to be in the 10. Amen.